But uh, as Evan has already said, and rightly so, it really is such a joyful and privileged opportunity we have to get together as God's people on Sunday mornings uh, and to, to worship Him. And, uh, you know, we can, as we get increasingly familiar with church, the more we're a part of it, we can forget just how uh, amazing and unique this sort of community is. As I just look around here and just think for a moment and, and look at ones and twos and threes and fours, the diversity amongst us uh, is, is, uh, is amazing, even in itself. Even though we're not, you know, we might go to other churches in, in city areas and there's a far uh, broader cultural diversity or ethnic diversity, uh, and we're not quite a, as diverse in that area. But just in terms of what people's uh, experiences are, the things you do, where you've come from, what kind of family you've been a part of, all those sorts of things, uh, the goals you have, um, the, the, the hobbies that you enjoy, the diversity here is just enormous. And yet we come together unified in the single purpose of worshipping God and responding to him. And we celebrate what he's done for us. That's what this is. It's not just an event we turn up to. This is an opportunity to worship and to celebrate him, to sing his praises, to commune in prayer with him. And I think, and, and many do and ought to, um, one of the things and the best ways we do that is by upholding God's word, is by centralising God's word and wanting to sit under God's word um, and, you know, often you'll hear people say, um, and they mean well, but, you know, I stand on God's word. I think it's better if we say we sit under God's word, you know. Uh, God's word is authoritative and we sit under it um, and we get to hear what he wants to say. And at Tari Baptist, um, we're a church, um, like many, who take this so seriously that we like to read the Bible a lot of the times, the same passage. So that's why we'll have a reading and then we'll go through, when we preach and hear from God's word, we go through the passage, almost verse by verse. We try to, to do so. We start a book. We'll kind of work our way through it, or a letter. We'll have a break sometimes, and then get back to that book a little bit later on. And that's what we're kicking off here, is a new series in Galatians. We've put a hold on John's Gospel, and we'll pick that up in the lead-up to Easter next year. And just for a couple of weeks, we're going to look at Galatians uh, before heading into a an Advent series leading up to Christmas. And I think that's going to be a really good one as well. So I want to encourage you, if you do have your Bibles, keep them open or the page open or whatever it is that you, uh, the screen open, whatever it is that you use. Keep them at Galatians and we'll go through it together in a few moments. But, um, you know, they say that I talk fast. I like to show this clip that's coming up when we start a new book because these guys talk way faster and then it makes you think I don't talk fast. So we're just going to hear a little summary um, some people don't get these, a lot of people do, so whichever way it works for you. Have a listen and a look at this as we come to Galatians. Thank you. Paul's letter to the Galatians. It was written to a number of churches in the region of Galatia where Paul had traveled on one of his missionary journeys. You can read the stories in the book of Acts. He wrote this important letter from a place of deep passion and frustration. Here's the backstory. Christianity began as a Jewish messianic movement in Jerusalem, but its message was for all humanity, and so it quickly spread beyond Israel. By Paul's time as a missionary, there were as many non-Jews as there were Jewish people in the Jesus movement, and this sparked a huge debate that we know about from the book of Acts chapter 15. Historically, the covenant people of God were focused in one ethnic group, Israel, and they were set apart by the practices commanded in the Torah, like circumcision of males, eating kosher, observing the Sabbath. And there were many Jewish Christians who believed that for all of these non-Jews to truly become a part of God's family, 
they needed to obey the laws of the Torah. And so some of these Jewish Christians ended up coming to the Galatian churches. They were undermining Paul and demanding circumcision of all these male non-Jewish Christians. And so many of them were. And when Paul found out, he was brokenhearted and angry. And this letter is the result. He first challenges the Galatians with his summary of the gospel message about the crucified Messiah. He then argues that this gospel is what creates the new multi-ethnic family of Jesus and Abraham. And then he shows how this gospel is what truly transforms people by the presence and power of the Spirit. He opens by expressing his bewilderment that the Galatians have embraced a different gospel. It's the one promoted by these Christians who badmouth Paul and demand circumcision. So Paul first defends the authenticity of his message and authority as an apostle. He was commissioned by the risen Jesus himself to go to the non-Jewish world. Remember the story from the book of Acts. Paul says it was only later that he went to Jerusalem to consult the other apostles like Peter or James. And when he told them he wasn't requiring non-Jewish Christians to be circumcised or eat kosher, they were in full support. But this tension ran deeper. Peter had come to Antioch to visit and see all of these non-Jewish Christians, and he was eating and mingling with them. But when some of this Jerusalem opposition group showed up in Antioch, Peter caved under their pressure. He stopped eating with these uncircumcised Christians, and he was avoiding them. And so Paul confronted and accused Peter of hypocrisy, of not staying true to the gospel. For Paul, demanding these new Christians to become circumcised and Torah observant, it's wrong-headed for all kinds of reasons. First of all, because it's a betrayal of the gospel. Or in his words, people are not justified by the works of the Torah, but rather by the faith of Jesus the Messiah. And we have faith in the Messiah Jesus. To be justified, or literally to be declared righteous, it's a rich Old Testament term for Paul. It's when God declares that someone is in a right relationship with him. They're forgiven, they're given a place in God's family, and they are being transformed by God's grace. And it's Paul's conviction that no one can be justified by observing the commands of the Torah, but only by the faith of Jesus. This is a dense phrase, and it could refer to Jesus' own faithfulness in living and dying on our behalf, or it could refer to our own trust and devotion to Jesus. Either way, the point is clear. People are justified only through trusting in what God did for them through Jesus, not by what they do for themselves. At the heart of Paul's gospel is this claim, that when people trust in the Messiah Jesus, what's true of him becomes true of them. His life, death, and resurrection become theirs. Or in his words, I've been crucified with the Messiah, and it's not I who come back to life, it's the Messiah living in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so the reason anyone can say that they are right with God or belong to Jesus' covenant family, it's not because they obeyed the laws of the Torah. It's only because of what Jesus did for them that they could never do for themselves. Now, this profound understanding of what Jesus accomplished, it has huge implications for who can now be included in God's covenant family and for what it means to live as a member of that family. I do talk pretty slow, don't I? <laughs> I hope you uh, enjoyed that. And uh, that's available online anytime. We might put it in the Church Life email as a link. If you'd like to look through it, recap every now and then. It's a great, in fact, it's an outstanding summary, uh, a very deep and quick summary of Galatians. But what a great introduction to this. 
Basically, if we were to, to summarise even ourselves, the small part we're looking at in verses 1 to 10 this morning is that it speaks to a very real danger, a very real danger at ever thinking that our actions, our religious commitment, um, our, even our most sincerest, passionate acts of worship are in any way ever able to please God more than what God has done already for us in his son, Jesus Christ. And uh, Paul calls this message, this entire message, the gospel, the good news. That's what the gospel is. It's good news. And it's the power of God that brings salvation. Without the gospel and the gospel alone, the pure gospel, the true gospel, as Paul witnesses and testifies to here, along with the other apostles, there is no salvation. And there are many small g gospels today that abound in our society. Many narratives, uh, many teachings, many beliefs that encourage us to, uh, to be saved, to seek salvation, to seek redemption, to become transformed, to change ourselves by some other kind of good news outside of Christ, separate to Christ. In fact, it's really ramped up in probably the last 10 to 20 years where even the residue of the gospel, capital G, that we knew was the Christian uh, declaration, the Christian faith, the Christian tradition in society, we now say that that's actually getting in the way of these other small g good news messages and narratives of salvation. So we need to rid ourselves of it. And we need to enable and empower people to live out and declare and express and preach and teach a whole range, any kind of small g good news, small g gospel for salvation that might work for any individual. That, that's where we're at at the moment. And so it's really timely, I think, God's word's always timely, but we come to this passage and uh, we get to be reminded in a very profound way and Paul pulls no punches. As a church, this message, the message from Galatians, challenges us to keep that capital G gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, as central. Not because it's the start of the Christian life. Many of us are familiar with the gospel and we think, yeah, I get the gospel, I came to faith when I put my trust in Jesus, that's the gospel. I believe that he died for my sins, uh, that I'm forgiven and that when I die, I will live with him forever in eternity in his kingdom. And we say that's the gospel, that's how I got in. And from that point there, we sort of look back on it as, as something. And then we spend, to varying degrees, a whole lot of um, our time looking for something else, something more, something more inspiring, something new, something fresh, and, and we're missing the point. It's not uh, the start of the Christian life. The gospel is the entire Christian life from start to finish. You may be familiar with the pastor, uh, theologian, author, Tim Keller. Many of you read his books, and uh, if you don't, we'd encourage you to. He's a great author, a real pastoral heart. He says the gospel isn't the ABCs of Christianity. It's the A to Z of the Christian life. It's the way that you go into the Christian life, sure, and it's the way that you live out the Christian life in its entirety. Well, here's the thing. When you and I, when we understand that, it changes everything. It absolutely changes everything. And many of us here can testify to that. Um, there are also many of us here that might know the gospel, we might know about the gospel, but perhaps we haven't quite come to grips yet, fully, or we've stopped coming to grips with understanding the implications of the gospel and how you know that's happening in your life is because it's probably why we're often looking for a list of things to do it's probably why we're often 
are driven by that sense of I'm not doing enough, I need to do more. It may be why many of us feel spiritually dry or lack spiritual uh, motivation. Maybe we don't have passion anymore uh, about our faith. It's why some of us even sit on the fence, happy to be at church or come along to a church until it doesn't meet your needs anymore and you go and find another one. Um, or you just kind of come to church and you have a very demarcated life. You live completely, um, it's kind of separate. It's a couple of hours on a Sunday when you can get there. You've got one foot in and one foot out and you're kind of teetering on the fence when it comes to your Christian faith. Well, there's one guy in history... Uh, he's a favourite of mine, and he certainly never sat on the fence. In fact, he kicked off uh, the whole uh, Protestant Reformation, or he's one of the guys that kicked off the whole Protestant Re Reformation. I'm talking about Martin Luther. And uh, the reason why he kicked off what became the Protestant Re uh, Reformation was for centuries, the gospel had been overtaken by a whole lot of religion and man-made rules and man-made traditions. And the gospel had, had basically become lost. And it was a massive problem. And he encountered this and he discovered the true gospel, which, by the way, had always been there. It was always in the scriptures. It's just that those proclaiming it and teaching it were doing it in languages no one could understand and were doing it so separate from everyone else and so in such a superior sort of way that it became absolutely meaningless ritual with a whole lot of fear behind it and guilt. But there in these same scriptures, Martin Luther rediscovered the gospel and the rest is history but this is what he said about galatians out of all the scriptures this is his favorite book he said that galatians explains what the gospel is not and so once we understand what the gospel isn't then we have a much better way of understanding and seeing clearly what it is so we're going to kick off uh, again, just to recap, uh, Galatians chapter 1, the first couple of verses, a typical introduction from the Apostle Paul. You don't sign off letters like we do, you start with your name at the start of a letter in the Bible. Uh, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men or by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers and sisters who are with me to the churches in Galatia. Now a couple of things to notice straight up. The book of Galatians is written uh, by Paul to the churches in Galatia. It's not to the Galatian church. Galatia was a region. In fact, if you're a fan of, um, what was it called, that cartoon book, The Gauls, uh, Asterix and Obelix, if you're a fan of that, Galatia was basically kind of what loosely the area that the Gauls came from. Uh, it's a region today which is where modern-day modern Turkey is. And Paul's writing to a region of churches. And that's really important for us to understand here because what Paul is about to address, this danger uh, that he's uh, confronting in this letter, is a major issue and it's a major issue that is spread right across an entire region. This isn't about one person. It's not like he's calling out one false teacher. This isn't a, a one bad church that are losing their way. What's happening here has begun to infect a, a whole range of churches. It's a major issue. Here's the other thing that we notice in those first two verses. Look at how Paul identifies himself. He gives his credentials. Not the credentials that he lists uh, elsewhere in Philippians, uh, all about his Jewish pedigree, although he could and he certainly had one, but he simply says he's an apostle, which means one who is sent. Well, who is it that Paul's been sent by? Well, he says an apostle, he's an apostle sent 
not from men or by men, but sent by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. You know what's being said here? It's profound. We need to think about it. Paul is speaking with the authority of the one who sent him. It means that when we read Galatians, we are hearing the words of a message coming directly from Jesus himself. He's the one who sent Paul and Paul is saying, it's not me writing this, this is, this is me writing this for you from the one who sent me, Jesus Christ and his Father, our Heavenly Father. You know, often um, we do hear of people who are often wanting a word from God or they want a message or they want a revelation from God and we all pray, I do too, I pray the same, my Lord, speak to me in this particular area or, or speak to me in this situation or give me some wisdom. And, and, and you know, sometimes we can do that at the expense of overlooking what God has already done, what God has already spoken to us about. And all we need to know, often we ask him for answers to things and for insights into things that maybe he doesn't want us to know. All we need to know is here in his word. And I've got to say this, you know, every time I hear, and I do hear this a bit, and I think it myself from time to time, I confess, but I hear someone, they sort of express this desire that, um, that they're bored with the way we hear from God. That it's just not doing it for them anymore. Um, the preaching, the teaching, that it's not connecting or, you know, and, and we who pass the message on need to listen to that and uh, make sure it's not our fault, uh, humanly speaking. But do you know what else that grieves me underneath that? And, and even with myself, is beneath it, it's almost 100% of the time, I can guarantee that myself or that person, those people who think like that, who express that, have long since stopped meaningfully and intentionally engaging with God's word, engaging with God's word. We crave spiritual motivation, we crave life change in the way that we think and the way that we act, and we want wisdom and insight and peace and confidence in your life. The reality is, as Christian people, as God's people, we will not find it anywhere else other than in, our, in the scriptures, in the Bible, that God has pulled together through 40 different authors over 1,500 years with the same message right throughout history from start to finish, culminating with Jesus in the middle, beginning with him, the living word, and ending with him, our returning victorious king. It's all there, and God speaks through it. Now, I know many people who do do that. They are those who regularly and habitually engage with God's word. And you'll probably recognize them too. Here's a tip. They're the faithful ones amongst us who are growing and maturing. They're not often the ones we hear from or see necessarily up the front or doing great things in a very public way. They're not the ones often verbalizing about how bad the world is and how, how rotten things are and, and what's happening, although there's nothing wrong with that because there's plenty to talk about in that area. These are the people who often quietly and calmly, with resolve, spend considerable time in various ways, habitually in their lives, sitting under God's word, marinating in it. I've got to say, and I'll say this on behalf of Evan, I haven't checked with him, but I'm sure he agrees. Um, he'll have to now. It's an enormous privilege as pastors. It's an enormous privilege as pastors. We get time during our weeks, and that's where we thank our churches for that. We get to spend anywhere between roughly, or I'm going to be really roughly, between 15 to 20 hours a week. On a bad week, sometimes 8 to 10, but 15 to 20 hours studying and preparing to teach the Bible with clarity. And you know what they say, if you want to learn something, go and teach it, right? It's an enormous privilege. For all the struggle, I can tell you it's hard because there's a spiritual thing going on with this all the time. 
but we put the energy and we put the effort in, in partnership with God to try and communicate with clarity, to try and do so with accuracy, representing the scriptures the best way we can as we apply them um, to our lives uh, in, in our context today. We do that with the Spirit's help and it's an enormous privilege. But what we don't need as a church from pastors and from teachers are helpful insights, tips for healthy living. We need to hear from God. We really need to hear from God. And that only happens when we are engaging regularly and consistently with his word and being diligent in the way we teach it and apply it. If Jesus is Lord of our lives, then we have to hold his word up as the final authority in our lives. I mean, he is quite literally the living word of God. That's what the beginning of John's gospel we've been looking at reminded us. He is God in the flesh, the word from the beginning. It also means when we look at the Bible, we can't get to pick and choose, you know. When we read this confronting uh, bit, and we're going to get into it in a minute, when Paul unleashes with a very blunt warning, we can't pick and choose and throw those bits out. There's, there's a lot of strong words in the Scriptures, a lot of tough messages to hear in the Bible. There are a lot of things that are unpopular as culture changes and, and people come up with whiz-bang new ideas that aren't new, they've only been done repeatedly over history, it's just we discovered them in our little puny 70, 80 or 90 years. But when that happens, uh, God's Word transcends all that and it speaks into that and it confronts these new things. Well, Paul continues with the Word of Jesus and he does so uh, as an authoritative representative. This is what he says again, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins uh, to rescue us from the, this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So in the first two verses, he claims authority for this message, and then in verses 3 to 5, he gives us the content of that message. And he's going to take these two things, and this is basically what he lays out for the rest of the book in that order. But now Paul gets straight to the point with why he is writing. Verse 6, I am astonished, I am amazed, he says, that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Jesus Christ, by the grace of Christ, and you're turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. But there are some who are troubling you and they want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, that is the apostles themselves, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, then let them be under God's curse. Paul is peeved, make no mistake, and rightly so. Notice what's missing in this introduction. <laughs> Did you notice what's missing? It's unique in this, only, only in this letter. There's no warm, fuzzy greeting. You know, in the other, the other letters, like, you know, Colossians and Ephesians and Philippians and... Um, the others and he sort of does this wonderful affirmation he builds them up he encourages them he says this is what i've heard about you and you're doing well keep doing it before he jumps into his message to tweak or correct or adjust but in this one he just goes straight in because this is enormous this is a major issue there's a false gospel being preached there's a false gospel being taught and can i say there's no guilt here for those we'll get to it in a minute we're going to look at we're going to have a good look at ourselves as to whether we ourselves have listened to believe or follow false gospels or a false gospel but there's no guilt here this is actually on the leaders this is on those who dare to preach and proclaim and teach that's what this is on but paul is also saying you heard it yourselves as god's people you heard the original message you should be 
in it enough to be able to hear when something is false. And so he's cranky. He goes straight into it. So serious is this false gospel that he repeats himself in verse 9. As we've said before and I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. This is where we get the word anathema from. It's curse that person. These are strong words. You won't get much stronger. He goes on, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Am I trying to please people? If I were trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Well, here's the big issue. There's a group of people They'd infiltrated the region of Galatia. They're Judaizers. They're Christians who've come to faith in the Messiah, they, but they were Jewish. So they come from God's long heritage of people and they are entrenched in the laws and the traditions and the practices and ceremonies of the Jewish Hebrew faith. And so they were saying, you know what? As these new Christians come into the church, no way. No way are they coming into the church and they just get a free pass and don't have to do all the stuff that we've had to do. There are things that they need to obey. They need to learn the ways of the Old Testament. They need to learn the laws of God. And then once they've learned them, they too, like us, will be able to transform themselves into the people that God wants them to be and, uh, and they will have right standing with him, which is kind of, you know, so self-deluded, isn't it? Isn't that what for centuries the entire Old Testament exists for? Half, all the prophets calling out Israel saying, you think you're keeping the law, but you're not keeping the law. <laughs> but this is what they said. We get Jesus, we've got our Messiah, but the works of the law, doing out the works of the law, carrying out the works of the law, is what will achieve salvation for you. Well, this was not at all the message that they'd first heard. The first message they'd heard and accepted from the apostles, particularly from Paul in Galatia, was one about grace. There was God that comes in and says, I've seen consistently that even my people who had my presence with them cannot keep the law. They fail me and let me down time after time after time. I'm going to do something radical. I'm getting my sleeves rolled up. I'm getting involved. I'm going to send my very own son. And I'm going to fix this problem for you because you can't for yourself. He's going to be perfect. He's going to attain to the law. He's going to achieve it perfectly. And then he's going to give his life away. And all you've got to do is put your faith and your trust in him as the perfect man, the God-man, Right, and you are forgiven, just as forgiven and just as perfect and holy and law-abiding as he is. And you do that by faith. You can see there, this is the false gospel. Jesus plus works of the law equals salvation. Well, not only was this not the message, Paul will have none of it. He's utterly shocked at how fast these churches have bought into this false gospel. He, he can't believe it. And they're doing literally the opposite of living freely in God's grace, right? They're going backwards to put on the slavery, the, the, the yoke of the burden of the law instead of the freedom of the grace of Jesus. And the gospel's meant to, it literally means good news, right? These Christians weren't embracing something that was at all good news. That's bad news. Jesus had freed them from that. And, and, and the minute they start adding things like you know, getting circumcised or obeying these certain rituals or laws or keeping the commandments and doing all these sorts of things and, and checking yourself and judging others for not and, and failing and so on. The minute you do that, you're putting yourself above Jesus. That's what Paul's getting at here. You're downgrading, you're degrading what Jesus has achieved for you, for us on the cross. We're putting it lower than our pious religious efforts. It's appalling, pardon the pun. He's like, why are you listening to this? Why would you even be embracing it? You know the truth. 
You've been freed. Why are you turning away from that? It doesn't matter who's teaching. I don't care how articulate they are or how powerful they might be or wealthy or, or how clever they are or enigmatic or you know, whatever it is that they might be. Even if an angel themselves came down from heaven and started saying something slightly different and teaching something different to what we passed on to you, may they be under God's curse. It's a pretty gutsy thing to say, isn't it? Like even if an angel, how many of us here, like we, you know, and you hear people, oh, I heard from this angel, I'd love to hear from an angel. Well, keep it in mind, just in case an angel does turn up and starts telling you something different to what you've already heard, what we know and what we have in the Bible and what the apostles have brought to us. Well, what can we learn from this? I think there's two questions. Pretty straightforward. The first one's this. It's a question to reflect upon in our own hearts. Are you, are we, believing a false gospel? Again, there's no judgment here. It's a question worth examining our own hearts with. You know, preachers of all people, can fall into this the more we preach you've got to come to jesus you have to come to jesus you've got to respond in faith to jesus you've got to love jesus you've got to please jesus the only way to please god is through jesus we can actually ourselves inadvertently start preaching a new works-based small g gospel so the warning's on us but let's all ask the question are you believing a false gospel now many of us will say no way i'm not believing a false gospel i came to faith and i know exactly what it is and that may well be the case and that's awesome but here's the problem. It's so easy for us as people, even well-meaning Christians, to become blinded. These Jewish Judaizers, they were well-meaning. They were trying to please God, right? But we can sometimes uh, be blinded to what, what it is we believe to the point that we don't even realise what we're actually believing anymore. We may believe one thing, we may say we believe one thing, but based on the way we're thinking, the way we're living, we actually believe something else, most likely a false gospel how do you know if you've bought into a false gospel well let me suggest one scenario when you see your standing when you see your relationship with god based on anything other than faith in jesus and what he's achieved for you then you are buying into a false gospel let me show you how this plays out this is where you feel like and when you think about this what do you think about when you come to god when you think about god and what he thinks of you you come to God and you feel like he views you based on what it is that you've done or how good you are. If you had a good week, you've read your Bible, you didn't get into an argument with your wife or your husband or anyone else in the family for that matter, you didn't lose your temper, you didn't kick the dog, it's okay if you do the cat, they're just cats, but anyway. <laughs> That's my words, not the words of the Lord. Uh, anyway, if you, if you didn't do all those things and you've had a pretty good week, right? You've had a pretty good week and come the weekend you go, I'm going to go to church and I'm going to lift my hands, I'm going to sing praises to God and worship Him because I feel like I've had a good week and I have had a good week, I've done all the right things. But then there's the week where things don't go so good or the weeks or the months. <laughs> you didn't read the Bible as regularly as you'd like, perhaps not at all. You have gotten into regular arguments, you're losing your cool all the time and you've become grumpy and bitter and you're in a bad mood all week. Now, there are plenty of things to be grumpy and bitter and bad and, and, and be upset about in this world. Don't, don't get me wrong. The Bible's full of opportunities to lament and express and grieve those things. But some of those, some of those attitudes, some of those things you've done during the week, the bad things, have actually led to you doing other bad behaviours that you want to talk about. And on those weeks comes the weekend, you think, oh, I can't go to church. I don't want to go to church. I've messed up. I'm not worthy. I can't be raising my hands in worship. I can't be getting excited and singing wholeheartedly. 
You can do that with your hands in your pockets too, by the way. It's not a sign of you worshipping passionately. But, but you feel like you've failed him. And you don't feel worthy. You know, I'm, certainly, I'm certain that nearly all of us here know exactly at some point in our lives what that feeling's like. You think that if you can just hold the line, if you can just do the right thing, then God will bless you because you've behaved well for him. Well, that is not the gospel of grace. It's not a gospel of grace. That is a false gospel. It's legalism. Why is it legalism? Because God's love and his blessings are tied to your behaviour. They're tied to what you do rather than what Jesus has already done. And do you know what happens when you're stuck in legalism? This new thing comes into your life. It's called guilt. And it becomes a driving and motivating factor. Guilt is when you feel disqualified. Guilt is when you feel unworthy, that God's grace isn't good enough or sufficient for you. Let's be honest, that's what guilt is. And this kind of guilt for a Christian person, by the way, is the number one tool of the accuser, the Satan, the one who uses that against us, bar no other means or method. That is what he uses against us. And this kind of guilt is something that stifles us. It paralyzes us. It's an awful way to live and feel. It's horrible. Many of you, I'm sure, can identify with it. It's one of the worst feelings you can have. I will say at this point, there's a slightly similar feeling called conviction. And that's not like guilt. That's actually different. Conviction, or being convicted about something, is designed to bring you back to the gospel. That's God's spirit at work in your heart and your mind, and it's bringing us back to his grace. It's encouraging us to look to Jesus for strength in him alone, to claim victory that we have in him over sin, and it keeps us humble, it keeps us grateful, keeps us um, reliant on his grace and his mercy. That's conviction. But guilt, it keeps you away from God's grace. It, it, it drags you inward, makes you feel completely worthless and burdened with having to strive and work harder at being better each week. It's a cruel way to live. Now, just to be clear for those that are thinking, hang on, Chris, don't chuck out the, the law altogether. What purpose did the law have? Well, Paul's already addressed that thoroughly in the book of Romans, which we're not looking at. Galatians, by the way, is like a mini-Romans, much more succinct. Now, the law of God certainly had a purpose. It still does. We come to the law and we go, oh my goodness, how imperfect am I? I can't possibly attain to that. And the minute I think I do, I then go to the words of Jesus who says, oh, you've heard about this in the law, well, I say this to you is just the same as breaking it. So, you know, if you just get angry at someone, you might as well have murdered them, right? Jesus ramps it up another level. So the law had a purpose, as Paul says, it's to point out our need for grace. The law drives us to grace. It has us on our knees going, I can't possibly attain to this. Lord, have mercy, and I throw myself on your mercy. But what we have to see in all of this is that we are saved by grace and, by, and only by our faith, by trusting in Jesus, his faithfulness to us and our partnership in being faithful to him. But we are not saved in any way by the law. Paul goes and says in Ephesians, along these lines, he says, um, this, is, this is a free gift that comes from God. It's not from yourself. Grace isn't earned. It doesn't come from doing good things. Why? So none of us can boast, right? We can't boast in ourselves in any way. We can only boast in Jesus Christ. A false gospel says do, right? This is a great way to remember it. A false gospel says do, while a true gospel says done. And do you know what? In brackets, you're then free to do. You're free to do and serve. 
There's only one gospel, and it comes to us freely from grace alone. Well, the second question might be this as we close. Are you defending that true gospel? See, Paul was defending the true gospel. That's what he's doing here. It's his job as an apostle. He laid his life on the line as the other apostles did. He too ended in death. His life was cut short because of his defense of the gospel. He went up against not just one or two teachers, but an entire region to defend the truth as it was infecting and permeating through and perverting the churches in the region of Galatia. You know, for us, the least we can do is share our faith with our neighbours, with someone in our family, with a stranger, someone we get to know in our sporting club or whatever other things we're involved with in the community. So it's a good question to ask, am I defending the true gospel? That's what he means in verse 10. He says, if I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. What's he getting at there? To be a servant of Christ means to defend the truth that we know about Christ. Right, And despite what might be popular in terms of opinion and, and, and what the community thinks and all the different beliefs that are out there, Paul wasn't a servant of people. He wasn't a servant of all those things. He served Jesus first and foremost. And that's a really good reminder for us. We're not here to people please. We're here to please an audience of one, our Lord Jesus, for all he's done for us. Well, how might the approval of people affect the way... Um, that you, or the willingness, or perhaps the boldness that you have to share the gospel. If you're, if you're trying to please people, or you're sort of tiptoeing around people, and I, we're, anyone that likes people, by the way, is, is in danger of pleasing people. I know what that's like. We've got we to be careful about it. In fact, it's often why the most friendliest people are the most offensive, when they're trying not to please people. Because we all know that they're friendly normally, so what's wrong with them now? Yeah, they're, they're, they feel like they're being compelled to, to please you, and they, they're not here to please you. They're here to please God and serve Him first and foremost. But don't ever forget that the most loving thing any of us, ask, any of us can do is to share the gospel with someone who hasn't heard it. In relationship, over time, not just dumping street preaching with megaphones and things. Those days, God's used them. He uses a crooked stick to strike a good blow. Um, doesn't mean we should be using the crooked stick. Um, but do, it, do so in relationship. If there's one true gospel, the implications are real and life-changing and we need to share that with others who are living with, with no hope, who are struggling, who are lost, who are floundering and being duped by a whole host of small G gospels. Well, as we wrap up this morning, I know there are a whole range of Christian experiences here in our gathering. That's the value of being a part of a church too. We can learn from one another. And I suspect some of, the, some of us here uh, perhaps need to walk out of here with a, a renewed boldness and a, and a, and a renewed um, conviction for sharing and defending the gospel. For perhaps um, maybe it's something you've just, your mind's drifted away and it's kind of become too familiar. And maybe this is a helpful reminder to go, you know what, I am about Jesus and exclusively about Jesus. And I'm not going to get judgy and start condemning others who don't believe that, but I'm going to drill down within myself of my conviction. I'm going to start living accordingly. Maybe we've become yeah, too familiar, we're bored, we've been tempted to get distracted, start looking for other alternate poor substitutes to the glorious gospel of Jesus. And I encourage you to embrace this message of Galatians afresh over the coming weeks. Perhaps there are others of us here who've been actually believing a false gospel for a long time. It's subtle, 
Perhaps we've long since turned away from the basic truth of the gospel, Jesus being the focus and not our religious efforts. Well, it's time to reset your eyes on Jesus and him alone. It's time to repent from your attempts to please him and being holy and, and, and focusing on your own religious commitment. Paul's firm and blunt rebuke is fitting this morning and timely. But you know what? There may be some of us here who still actually need to trust Jesus for the first time. Maybe you've been here for some time, for whatever reason, you've been a part of our church, or you're even just visiting, I don't know. And, and maybe you think, actually, I haven't actually gone all in. I, I, I'm still sort of sitting on the outside, just listening, and I'm, and I'm not sure. Can I say that any one of us here that you know, or can be trusted, or that you trust, we would love nothing more than to sit down with you and, and answer questions and talk through things you may have, objections of, um, you know, confusions or can, can, it sounds all great, Chris, and very energetic, but can, I just don't understand it. Please reach out. We, we'd love to hear from you, any of us. We, there's nothing more exciting than someone saying, hey, I didn't quite get that. Can you tell me more about Jesus and what he's, what he's done for us and, and, and what this good news is? Just ask anyone. Take the time you need. It's the most beautiful and hope-filled message you'll ever hear in your life. Well, wherever it is that you're at, our prayer this morning as a church is that each one of us would know God's word dwelling richly in our hearts and in our minds. May we be spurred on as we continue to focus and listen to his truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. We thank you again for Jesus. We realign, we declare we want to realign our focus on him and him alone for our salvation. Forgive us, Father, for that long list that often jumps in the way in that equation where we add on things that we do, um, views about ourselves, um, ways to please you, disciplines perhaps we put on ourselves that can be good for a while but don't ultimately free us in a relationship of grace. We thank you for bringing us into that relationship. We thank you for the free gift of grace. And for the reminder this morning that there is nothing more significant, nothing more meaningful, nothing more powerful than the gospel that you've revealed to us in Jesus Christ. We thank you for that in his name. Amen.